Please turn to the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And I want to read verses um, 1 through 5 of the first chapter. And uh, take a look at this love which has four sides, which Mark has just sung. The book of Malachi, chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau. Really, the best word there, I have, I have not favored Esau. That's the word I was looking for in Sunday school, as a matter of fact. I have loved Jacob, but I have not favored Esau. And I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the barter of Israel. Let me remind you again of Calvin Miller's favorite story. He said that when his little boy was growing up, they taught him to read by letting him pick out words, and um, as they would travel, he'd, you know, kind of a car game. And he'd pick out a word and he would spell it so he'd get his letters right. And then he would pronounce it phonetically to try to be able to um, pronounce and spell and read. And he said one day they were traveling across Nebraska. He was pastor in uh, Lincoln at the time. And they passed this big old cattle uh, truck. And it was like a caravan of cattle trucks. And so he got, they kind of got caught behind a cattle truck in front and a cattle truck behind over those hills in Omaha, or in Nebraska. And he says, I was driving along, I looked, and somebody had taken their finger and had scribbled a four-letter word in the grime on the back end of that cattle truck. Now, don't ask me what that word was, kids, after church. But he said, I saw that word, and I thought, oh, dear God, don't let him see that word. And he said, but as we, he said, I couldn't pull back because the cattle truck was behind. I couldn't pass because there were several cattle trucks and hills and cars on the two-lane highway. So he said, I'm just praying, oh, Lord, don't let him see the word. He saw the word. And, oh, he said, Daddy, there's a word, he said, and he started uh, spelling it, calling the letters slow and agonizing. He said, I have my aunt sitting in the back seat. She, 
He said, to say she was conservative is the understatement. A prude would be more like it. She wouldn't even touch a Bible that wasn't the King James. And so she's reading from, from the Criswell translation of the King James Bible as we rolled along. And as he started spelling that word, she had a stroke. I mean, he said we had to get out smelling saws, <laughs> get her revived. Slow and agonizing, he spelled the word. Then he started to pronounce it phonetically. <laughs> and he said, I... I couldn't say stop. He said, my other kid was in the car snickering and laughing. <laughs> and he said, we got, it, got the word out. And he said, I told him I'd explain it later, you know, what it meant. And then he said, he said, Dad, he said, I found that those little short words are the hardest words to learn. They really are. Like go and be you know, those are hard words to learn and do. And even those little longer short words like give, that's a hard one, isn't it? G-I-V-E is hard to do. And pray, I found that the hardest thing I do in the ministry is to pray. Now, prayer is not hard, but the will to pray is exceedingly difficult. But the hardest word of all to do and learn and to live out is the word L-O-V-E. Agape, godly love, is a tough word. I suppose that what we need to discover is, or to rediscover, is the meaning of that word. A few years back, the Newsweek magazine ran an article in which they were anticipating what would be the most difficult question for the United States to answer as we approach the year 2000. And so they asked 22 of the great leaders, thinkers in America, to, to respond to the question, what do you believe is America's greatest question? And they got some interesting responses from the educational and, 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 and professional and political world. One person said, will America regain its position of trust and integrity in the, in the emerging countries of the world. One man asked, will America ever be independently, uh, independent of oil needs in the world? And one man put it like this, he said, will we be able to structure an economy that will enable us to maintain our superiority in the world? But a, the Mexican poet by the name of Octavio Paz put in this answer. He said, will America reinvent love? And he went on to explain what he was saying. He's saying that we'll never recover until the peoples of the world reinvent love. And he said that we need the musicians and the artists of the world to bring us some images that will allow us to reinvent the concept of love or will not survive. I submit that our, probably our need is not to reinvent love but to rediscover it. To rediscover what agape love is and is about. And I suppose that the first step in the rediscovery of love is to remind ourselves of how unworthy we are of it. 
For the best way to see agape or the love of God is to see it against the background of what we really deserve and how we do not deserve God's love for us. I, I suppose that you can never really see something clearly against, uh, unless you see it against the background of what we really deserve. And that's why the love of God stands out in bold print in the book of Malachi. Strange place to find it because this is a tough crowd that Malachi is preaching to. And they're so insensitive to the love of God and when the prophet talked about his love for them, they just kind of responded with a kind of bitter cynicism. Well, how could you say that God loves us? We, you know, prove it. And so Malachi takes this marvelous love of God and he stabs it down into the lives of these people who are so undeserving of it and says, I want you to rediscover what it means that God loves you. And really when you study this love of the Old Testament, especially in the book of Malachi, you see that it has four sides. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to just walk around all four sides of that love to discovery. First, it is an elective love. Jacob have I chosen, but Esau I have not favored. And what you have here is an Old Testament um, foreshadowing of the New Testament concept of election. Now stay right with me here, please. When you introduce a theological concept, the theological concept of election, it's like entering a dimly lit room. You don't see everything clearly. Somebody asked me one time, do you believe in the doctrine of election? I said, how could I, you know, I can't help it. I have to. It's, the Bible teaches it. And they asked me, do you understand it? My answer was no. I don't understand it. Somebody said, I think I understand the doctrine of election. It means that God has chosen some to be saved and some to be lost. That is not the doctrine of election. God is not willing that any should perish. But I believe that there are some underlying truths concerning this elective love of God, this choosing of us. And these are the underlying truths. One is this, is that salvation is not initiated by us. It is dictated by God Himself. So that the whole scheme of redemption is a plan that God Himself dictated. Jesus said, no one can come to me except it be given him of the Father. So that if a person comes to Jesus, it is because God has dictated that to be true. And Jesus was not crucified because he made people angry and he was martyred because of it. The whole scheme and plan of that redemption was planned before the foundation of the world. Before there was a sinner, there was a Savior. Second underlying truth. You really haven't chosen the Lord if you have been saved. You have just responded to His choice of you. He called me long before I heard, says a songwriter, before my sinful heart was stirred. He was seeking me long before I sought Him. And so my response to God is a response to His choice of me. Third, election is not, or salvation is not a time-space event. Watch this. It is something that was decreed in eternity past. 
It is not a time-space event. That is to say, your salvation was based upon the foreknowledge of God, something that He determined in eternity past. And so He brings the illustration of Esau and Jacob. Now I worked with my Sunday school class a little on this verse this morning and we kind of worked on it a little bit. This is what we determined. That Esau really, uh, you know, Esau and Jacob were twins, but Esau was the firstborn and he really deserved the birthright and the blessing of his father by right of Jewish law and culture. You know that, don't you? And so really Esau was the one who deserved the blessing and the birthright of his father. And, and not only that, but there was something about the nature of Jacob that made his reception of the birthright and blessing of his father unthinkable. For his name means surplanter, it means heel snatcher. It really literally means somebody who is cunning and deceitful, who will slip up behind you and stab you in the back. He's like a person who would shoot you in the back while you were walking away from him. That was Jacob's nature. And what God is telling us in this illustration is, is that really the better choice of the two for God to place His love upon and His blessing upon was not Jacob. The better choice of the two was Esau. So the question is, why did God choose Jacob? Or why would He choose you for salvation? And the simple answer is a four-word answer, because He wanted to. For there was nothing in Jacob that made him attractive to God. And even in the New Testament, there is nothing in his life that made him more deserving of the blessing of God upon his life. So why did God choose this one Jacob to put his love upon? Because he wanted to. Now what is the explanation of your salvation? Was it because you are worthy of it? You are attractive? To God, there is nothing in you that attracts God to you. Why then did He save you? He wanted to. And that's the glorious and wonderful thing about it. Let me read you something. There's an Old Testament illustration. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. Let me just read it. You just listen. Here's what it says. For you are a holy people. He's talking about the Jews. A holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the other peoples. In other words, the, the, the only explanation of God's choice of us, His love of us is that He just wanted to love us. It's an elective love. Second, this word love in the Old Testament is a covenant word. It means that God has made a promise or a pledge of love. Now when you read the Old Testament, what you need to discover and what you need to find is this marvelous idea of the covenant of God. Now watch carefully. God made a covenant to His people that He would preserve and protect them. And that was His promise to them. And His, and his ability or the carrying out of that promise 
was based not upon man's worthiness of it or man doing certain things to maintain it, that relationship. It was based upon the trustworthiness of God. Now, if you have a problem with the doctrine of security of believer, you need to get a hold of this concept that God has made a pledge to His people and that pledge is based upon His faithfulness. At the same time, if God is faithful to keep His promise to us, man is bound to keep his pledge to God regardless of what God does. Now this is where the people in Malachi had a problem. They thought God had abandoned them. They thought God had forsaken them. They came back from captivity and they built the temple and, and, and God didn't in, in, you know, enter the temple in power and glory as before. And so they said to themselves, literally, God has forsaken us, we're going to forsake God. He doesn't answer our prayers, so we're not going to pray. If God is not going to be good to us, we're just going to turn our back on God. And the book of Malachi is a book that, in, that insists this truth, that you and I are to hold faith regardless of what God does. Now the problem with Malachi's people is they had these preconceived ideas about what God would do because we live in a cause-effect society, a cause-effect world, and we believe that if I do certain thing that God is bound to, to respond in a certain way. That's not the way it works. That a man comes and he gives his life to God and he, and he keeps faith regardless of what he thinks God is doing about it. It's a covenant love. Third, it is a domestic kind of love, is this love of God. Its analogy is that of a relationship of lovers, husband and wife, or even the relationship between a parent and his children and the children for their parents. It is a domestic kind of love. And to understand the love of God, you have to see it in that context. It's like what you experience and I experience as, as, a, as a, a husband or a wife or as parents. Now I need to say this because, and, and I'm not saying something you don't know is true. God hates divorce, always has, and always will. And the reason why He does is because it violates a basic law of society and cuts across God's plan for man. And he talks about how bad it is for one to leave the bride of his youth. But you and I also know that the book of Malachi is not a book to teach about divorce. What he is doing, now watch this, is showing us against the background of the tragedy of divorce how he is never going to leave us. That's how this thing works. He puts against the background of the pain of separation his love for us to say to us, I am not going to ever walk out on you or leave you. What a thought. Now because no sermon is complete without an illustration from Max Lucado. He tells that he was, when he was a kid playing Pony League 
baseball, he, was the, he held the record for strikeouts, not as a pitcher, <laughs> but as a batter. Okay? He batted 65 times that summer and got two hits. That's pretty bad. <laughs> and he said, it, it was kind of discouraging when they'd call out, the, the, the public address announcer would call out his name to be the next batter, and his teammates would boo, and the other team would cheer. He said, now that would, <laughs> that would discourage you. He said, it couldn't be a slump because I never got, you know, never did anything good to be a slump. But he said, you know, every time I'd get up to bat, I'd look up in the stands and there would be my mother and dad sitting in the same spot because their commitment to me was deeper than my performance. Their commitment to me was deeper than my performance. Everybody needs some at least one relationship that is based not on looks or performance and every person is in dire need of a partner or a friend who will look him in the eye and say I'm never going to leave you you may get old I'm not going to leave your body may get wrinkled, I'm not going to leave. Times may be difficult, the way may be hard, but I'm going to be here, I'm never going to leave you. Everybody needs at least one kind of relationship like that. It's like the young soldiers, two boys who were friends and they were in combat, and in this battle that was raging, one of them got separated and was pinned down by the enemy. And his friend was preparing to risk his own life to go out into the enemy fire and save him. And his commanding officer said, don't do it. You can't do that. You can't make it. But he disregarded the request of his commanding officer and under blistering fire he went out to his friend, got him and drug him back, carried him back to safety, when he got back, his friend died. And the commanding officer said, just as I thought, just as I said, it wasn't worth it to risk your life like that. There was no hope for him. And the boy heard his commanding officer say that, and he responded to his friends, yes, it was worth it, because when I got out there, my friend said, Jim, I knew you would come. Now what God is saying in this book of Malachi is this, you can go to the end of the earth, I'm going to go with you. And so he gave these illustrations from the book of Ezekiel of these people out in, in captivity, out in these refugee camps, of these wheels within wheels and eyes on the rims of these wheels and all of these visions, apocalyptic visions, were to describe the fact that you can get out in the wildernesses of life and you turn around and the omnipotent, omniscient God is there too. He's not going to leave you. And so Paul picks up on it when he says, can anything separate us from the love of God? Nothing not heights, nor deaths, nor angels, nor principalities, think present, or things to come. He'll be able to do it. Domestic love. Getting to this last one, 
I want you to hear this. It's a pragmatic love. It's a love that can be demonstrated. So verse 5, he did demonstrate it. It's a love that has practicality. It can be seen. Now what God wants to impress on us, I think, through this book is this, that if there is love, real love, it will find a way to express itself. And so Jesus was getting ready for the hour of his death and he was with this, in this home of Simon. You know the story. A woman comes in and she has an alabaster box, a box of perfume, a, a, a vial of perfume, very precious and costly. It's worth a year's wage. And she breaks that perfume and pours it on Jesus. And Judas indignantly says, Well, you shouldn't have wasted that perfume. You could have given that money to the poor. And John puts a little postscript and says, He didn't really mean that. He would have been pilfering from the bag all along. And Jesus' response was, now watch this, Jesus' response to Judas was this, leave her alone. The poor you have always, you don't have me always. And i tell you what's between the lines of Jesus' statement is this, Judas, come on, Judas, you don't really love the poor because if you really love the poor, you would already have been giving to the poor. For if there is real love, it will find a way to express itself. Two weeks ago, I did the hardest thing I've ever done as a pastor. I preached the funeral of one of my friends I would call an intimate friend. You know Dennis's story. And I had so many things I wanted to tell about Dennis that I knew personally, but I couldn't emotionally. If you were here, I barely got through the sermon. But I've been a close, intimate friend of Dennis's, Dennis Huggins for 14 years. And I tried to talk about it, but I couldn't. In this service that day was a man, I spotted him right at the first, sitting right over there about where Jerry Gillum is sitting. His name is Bobby Wakefield. He's a doctor up at Broken Bow. And I knew Dennis's love. You know Bobby, uh, Michelle? Uh, I've heard Dennis talk about Bobby and pray for Bobby. They They were buddies before Dennis became a Christian. Bobby told me things about Dennis I had not known. I mean, he told me about Dennis's life before he became a Christian. But after Dennis became a Christian, the change in his life was so profound that Bobby Wakefield could not get away from it. And for 14 years, or at least 10 years, Dennis has prayed for Bobby Wakefield and has witnessed to him. He sent him a Bible one time. He, he's been up to, to, to Broken Bow. He drove up to Broken Bow when he was physically unable to do it, really, to witness to him. 
And this has been going on for, for years. Well, in the end of that service, Bobby Wakefield told Carolyn, I want to meet your preacher, and I want to talk to him. Now, I, I, I was somewhat embarrassed by my emotionalism in this service and even apologized to Carolyn for it, but it touched him that I was talking about something that was genuine rather than just preaching a funeral service. Well, the long and short of it is, I went up to Broken Bow Wednesday, and Bobby Wakefield was standing in the yard waiting for me. And we went inside the house, and we started visiting about, uh, about Dennis, about why, what is there that, that enables a person to have peace and to bring joy and life. He said, he said so many things that I'll use forever in illustration. I, 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 you know, if I live to be 100 years old, I could never describe that meeting. One thing he said was, he said, Gerald, I've got things, but I don't have happiness. I don't have peace. And I said, well, Bobby, ask me the questions that you're dealing with. One of the questions he asked was this. He said, Gerald, do you really believe that the difference that Dennis lived out in his life was because he knew Jesus Christ. Do you really believe that? And we talked about that. And I told him I'd heard Dennis pray this prayer. If it means if I have to die in order for my friend Bobby Wakefield to be saved, let me die today. I've heard him pray that. When I told him that, he began to sob. And I said, now Bobby, you know, the greatest the most irrefutable evidence you have before you as to the reality and validity of this is the, is the irrefutable witness of a changed life and his love for you. He couldn't deny that. And so after about an hour and a half, I said, Bobby, would you like to pray and receive Christ? And there was this long pause. I learned in the seminary, when you ask the question, you don't answer it for them. There was about a two-minute pause. Both of us were just sitting, looking at each other. And then he said, that's what I want to do. And so down on our knees in this man's beautiful home, we prayed and he prayed to receive Christ as his personal Savior. And when he, when he got up to sit down back in his chair, we talked a little bit. Are you listening to this? I said, Bobby, what are your, what are your feelings now? Because he had talked to me about, you know, feelings. And this is what he said. He said, I have overwhelming sorrow. And I'm thinking, oh my. And I said, well, Bobby... Why do you have sorrow? God is my witness. This was his answer. That it took the death of the only friend I have for me to be saved. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. 
I want you to listen to me. Where there is genuine love, there is the demonstration of that love. Now you may deny, you may reject everything else about anything anybody says. But what are you going to do about that cross there? See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingling down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Are thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. What are you going to do about that demonstration? That's God's word from the prophet to us. I hope that in your heart of hearts you'll say here is my life I want to give it to you in response let's pray together our father I thank you that 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 grace indeed is amazing that would reach out across our own failure and sin to our heart and bring salvation and eternal life and peace. And God, I pray for those in this room today who have never been loved by Him, known that love and experienced it, who is called Jesus. They'll come to know him today. Grant, Father, the courage to give our life completely over to you, I pray, in Jesus' name. In a spirit of prayer, look here. I'm going to offer you an opportunity this morning to step out and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. He's been on the road in search of you from before the foundation of the world. Or maybe you need to respond in ways of rededication or church membership to the love of God while we stand to sing. I invite you to come.